I'm Joe Getz, and welcome to Profiles on WFIU. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and writers to get to know the stories behind their work. Our guest today is Jean-Louis Hagenauer, pianist and professor of music at Indiana University's Jacobs School of Music. A sought-after pianist, he's collaborated with some of the finest chamber groups of our time, in addition to his acclaimed work as a soloist. In addition to studying piano, he also studied composition with Nadia Boulanger and others. Nadia was famous for teaching many of the 20th century's most important composers like Aaron Copland, Elliot Carter, Astor Piazzolla, and scores of others. Renowned for his interpretations of French composers, Hagenauer has been in the process of recording the complete solo works of Claude Debussy for a number of years, a project that numerous pianists have tackled through the course of the recording era. But his latest project is incredibly unique. Hagenauer has just released a four-disc set of Claude Debussy's complete songs, and he used Debussy's own piano to do it. Professor Hagenauer, thank you for being here today. Thanks for having me today. I can't wait to uh, to share some of these beautiful songs with our listeners today. Uh, but first, I want to talk about you, if that's okay. W.C. wrote many of these songs on this four-disc set when he was a young student. Uh, some of them weren't even published during his lifetime. And you, too, as I mentioned, studied composition for a time. And when you perform or listen to these early Claude W.C. songs, does it bring you back to a time in your life when you were maybe trying to find your own voice as a pianist and uh, as even a perhaps a budding composer? It certainly does, uh, but it's true that even though I may have found some of my voice as a performer, it didn't happen uh, in composition. I was probably 20 or 21 when I decided uh, that I wouldn't be a composer. So uh, for a number of years before that, I had been considering myself as, as a musician, not exactly knowing whether that would be in composition, in piano, in conducting, or all of the above. But little by little, it, it became clear that I was not going to write a lot of music, and that playing the music that others had uh, written was probably the best way I could be a musician myself. When, when Debussy wrote these songs, some of these first songs, he was in his 20s. And mm-hmm. he, was, he was working as an accompanist, I believe, for a time, uh, for, for a wealthy singer. So he, he was exposed to a lot of songs that others had written, no doubt, at that time. Uh, what kind of songs do you think he was accompanying? And uh, who, which composers was he listening to while he was writing these songs? Oh, he was aware of the music that was written at the time. Uh, he was certainly aware of Fauré's as well as Chabrier. And he, w- he became very much in love with Wagner's music in his young days before he decided that this influence was probably too strong and he rejected it. But as many, many of his fellow composers of the time, Wagner was certainly a great, great influence and great figure for him. Well, let's listen to uh, one of these early songs by Debussy. Um, there's how many, how many totals are there on all these four discs? It looks like there's over 100. 101. 101. Yes. Um, well, this one is from... Uh, fairly early on by the 22-year-old Debussy from 1884. That was actually the same year he won the Prix de Rome, which is a a big composition prize that other 
uh, notable composers also won, I believe. Absolutely. This is a setting of a poem by the French poet Stéphane Mallarmé called Apparition, or en français, Apparition. Apparition, yes. Um, what should we listen for in this piece? I think it's a very interesting piece because it's the first time, to our knowledge, that Debussy uh, sets a poem by Mallarmé. And Mallarmé was an extremely important figure, and still is, as uh, the, the father of the symbolist movement in poetry. And I'm happy you, you decided to air this song, because even though it was written at a time Debussy was still very, very young, it carried with it some of the characteristics that will be used or present in his work through his life. So it's a very early song, but it's not as some of the other early songs can be. It's not draft. It's a real achievement. Well, here it is. Uh, the soprano is Liliana Faron, and uh, you, of course, at Debussy's own piano, which mm-hmm. we'll talk about in a little while. This is Apparition by Claude Debussy from 1884. Thank you. 
Apparition by Claude Debussy, written when he was 22 years old, and that's from the brand-new recording we're discussing today on Profiles with soprano Liliana Faron and pianist and IU professor Jean-Louis Hagenauer. I'm Joe Getz, and you're listening to Profiles. I'm here in the studio with Jean-Louis Hagenauer right now exploring this beautiful recording, and uh, it's the first-ever complete survey correct, of all of Debussy's songs? It is, yes. As far as we know today, as you may know, lots of the songs that we recorded have been recently found by musicologists. So who knows? In the future, others may may be found as well. To date, it's the most complete ever recorded set of Debussy songs. Being a pianist myself, um, I'm interested in hearing about this special instrument that you recorded on, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But I want to talk more about this poetry um, that Debussy used. Well, there is something I wanted to add about this uh, specific poem. Even though Mallarmé had written it 20 years before, it had just been published when Debussy decided to use it for his song. And that tells us a lot about Debussy's interest in what was going on at the time. He was very, very much man of his, of his time in terms of interest in art and poetry. He was a bibliophile. He, he wanted to buy every possible book that was released yesterday, if possible. And that was probably his way of educating himself as he didn't go to school. He went to music school. He, he, he was a good conservatory student, but he didn't go to school other than that. So books and poetry and novels were his university, and that's how he educated himself. That's how he, he became a very sophisticated uh, mind. And that's how also he became a very good writer because reading his books, especially uh, Monsieur Croche, uh, Antidilettant, the reviews he wrote about music, is fascinating because he's a wonderful writer. He knows how to express his thoughts in French using all the most incredible refinements of the French language. I think that's important to know. He was, he was a very, very sophisticated mind, but he, he educated himself. He was totally self-taught. I'm glad you brought up about his use of the French language, because when I think of Mallarmé, the poet who we just heard from in that song, Mallarmé believed kind of in the uh, the musicality of the spoken word. And I've, I've found that, and I'm, maybe I'm being a little too general here, that the musical language of composers from certain countries actually mirrors the spoken language. And when you totally, you're totally, I totally agree with what you're saying, and especially in, in Debussy's case. Yeah, when I, when I hear French, you know, spoken, it comes in long, very melodious lines, kind of rounded off around the edges. Not yeah, and with very, very little accentuation, very, very little stress on certain syllables. It's, it seems it can be very or sound very monotonous. But Debussy was understood so well, the music of the French language, and his goal was use the, the, the language as a musical element. And that was very new at the time. And he would even take the spoken word and not even write an actual song. And, you know, Mallarmé's poem, The Afternoon of a Fawn, 
of course, was the inspiration for one of Debussy's most famous orchestral pieces where there's no vocal part at all, his prelude to the afternoon of a fawn. Absolutely. And, I mean, he took the spoken word or the written word and was able to turn it into something that had no words at all. It's it's incredible. Yeah, how but he was able to if you if you pay attention to the title, it's a prelude to the, to the afternoon. Poem. It's yeah. it it's meant to be perhaps played before reading the poem, not with the poem. That's true. <laughs> well, you and I were emailing back and forth the other day, and you mentioned that you had the chance to accompany the great soprano Irene Joachim when you were just. 18. Yeah, I didn't accompany her in person. I accompanied uh, a master class or, or a series of master classes she gave at the time on Debussy's songs. What about her, her style was so important and what stuck with you from that experience? Well, she was a very interesting figure because, as you can hear from her name, she was the granddaughter of the great violinist Josef Joachim. Really? I, did not, I didn't even know they were related. She, she was uh, his granddaughter. Wow. And so she had both German and French roots. I was closer to her as a French interpreter because we worked on Debussy, but I knew her quite well and had numerous discussions with her and conversations on music in general. She was equally at ease with the German tradition and the French tradition. But when I worked with her, accompanying her master classes, we focused, as I said, on, on Debussy. And years before, she had been probably the most incredible Melisande that, from the opera Peleas et Melisande by Debussy. When she recorded in 1941, I think, the opera under the baguette of Roger Desormiers. And this recording stays up to now and a fantastic reference for all Peleas et Melisande lovers. It's an absolutely gorgeous recording of this opera. I'm Joe Getz with pianist and Jacobs School of Music professor Jean-Louis Hagenauer, and we're talking about and listening to a bit of his brand-new four-disc recording of the complete songs by Claude Debussy. Uh, Professor Hagenauer, let's listen to a few more selections from this recording right now. Debussy actually set some poems to music more than once, and we're about to hear two versions of the same song published in the same, one version unpublished, the other version he did publish from the same year called uh, Colloque Sentimental, sung by Francois Leroux with you at the piano. What why did he write two versions? Did he reject the first one? Uh, what, what's, what's the story here? Well, we don't exactly know. For a long time, the, the published version was the only one people knew, including myself. And the great Debussy scholar who helped us put together this work gave us access to a manuscript that has not been published until very recently. Just, I think it just got published a year ago. But when we recorded it in 2012, two years ago, it had not been published yet. The two versions have similarities, but have a lot of differences. The unpublished version is probably not as perfect as the published version, but it has many, many incredibly beautiful features in it. And there is also something in common between the two, which is a citation of passage from a, a much earlier song, En Sourdine, 
also written on Paul Verlaine's uh, words. And this quotation is a moment in Ansourdine when a nightingale expresses it, its love. So both versions, the published one and the unpublished one of a Colloque Sentimental, use this citation, this quotation of an earlier song. Well, let's listen first to the, uh, the unpublished version, and then we'll uh, talk a little bit about it and then jump into the second one. Oh, 
That was the first version of Claude Debussy's Colloque Sentimentale with uh, baritone Francois Leroux and my guest here on Profiles, pianist Jean-Louis Hagenauer. So that was the unpublished uh, version of Colloque Sentimentale. So what, what improvements are we going to hear now as we listen to I, the I, second I wouldn't, one? I wouldn't use this word. I don't think it's uh, an improvement. It's a different version. It's a different version, and probably um, for some reason he was not satisfied. He was not happy with the first version, so he decided not to go ahead and publish it. What do you think he would think right now that we're listening to it? I don't know. That's a good question. And we could we could ask this question in regard with a lot of the other songs we decided to record this in, uh, this time. And that's a question we can ask about a lot of great composers having decided or not decided, or, but for some reason, some of their, their works were not published at the time. But I think in retrospect, WC is now strong enough to be heard even in his weaknesses and use these so-called weaknesses to have a broad perspective upon his work. I don't think we put him in danger at all. He's strong enough. On the contrary, it's a good way to have very, very deep understanding of his process as a composer. I think your question is very interesting, but my answer is... It doesn't matter what he would think. It doesn't (laughs) matter so much. I think he's now at a stage where we have to try to understand his work, including some of the pieces that he was maybe not so happy with. Well, let's listen to uh, Colloque Sentimental version 2. ancienne
The second version of Colloque Sentimental by Claude Debussy, baritone Francois Leroux, with my guest today, pianist Jean-Louis Hagenauer. This is Profiles. I'm Joe Getz, and Jean-Louis Hagenauer has recently recorded the complete songs of French composer Claude Debussy using Debussy's own piano, I should add. And Professor Hagenauer, I'd love to talk about this instrument and uh, how Debussy may have come to get it, how you came to to, to record on it. Um, it's actually, to me, it's kind of amazing because it's a German piano, right? It's a Blutner um, that Debussy acquired in England in 1905. So here we have a Frenchman in England buying a German piano less than 10 years before the outbreak of World War One. How did this happen? I don't know how that happened. Uh, well, what I know is that Debussy was on vacation at the time uh, with his uh, new wife-to-be, Emma Bardac, and apparently fell in love with his instrument and decided to bring it back to Paris. But it's as soon as I started playing this piano, I under- totally understood why he would um, love this instrument so much. It has a very specific making with a fourth resonating string on top of the usual three strings. And Blutner at the time had come up with this very, very refined piano making, which actually has predecessors in string instruments, like viola d'amore has a similar feature with a resonating string. But for the piano making that was unheard of until the late 19th century when Mr. Blutner found this incredible technique. And when you play an instrument like that, it has to be in good shape. And that's the case with Debussy's piano because it has been beautifully restored. When you find a piano like that in good shape, it's absolutely extraordinary to see how it works perfectly well with Debussy's piano writing. You have no effort at all to obtain altogether incredible clarity due to these resonating strings, uh, which resonates an octave higher to the actual note you play. So you play a C, and you have a C one octave higher that sounds at the same time. Very, very, very softly. Well, and, and I mean, that already happens a little bit on a normal piano. That, that happens, but it's enhanced to a high, high level. And what also is very, very specific to these uh, pianos is the very distinct personality for each red register. So when you play the low register, you have very, very specific sonority and the medium register has a different sonority and the treble has a different sonority. So the piano has 
a very natural way of being orchestrated when you play it. You can very easily imagine and produce tone colors of flute of, or oboe on the treble and horns on the medium register, for example. And it comes naturally with no effort, just using a little bit of imagination. Well, how did you go about preparing for these recordings, given that you likely had to practice on your own piano at home, and then you probably made several trips back and forth to, to France to, to record these? We recorded that in three weeks in August of 2012. Oh, you did the whole thing we, in three we weeks? We did the, tri- the, the whole thing in, in one uh, summer, three weeks. But it, it leads to another question that I was wondering about. How do you prepare to record a set of songs by anyone when uh, you're learning the piano part by yourself, but you're not necessarily rehearsing all the time with the singers. And then how, how does that process work if you're just learning your piano part and then you meet up with one of the singers and then things un- undoubtedly change? How, how does that whole process well, work? Well, it's a process that's very similar to what happens in chamber music. You have to be very focused on your own part and at the same time, be very aware of what's going on with the other parts. What's different with songs is that you also have to be aware and work on the text because it's a big part of the of the story, you know. Uh, it's a big part of what happens. As a performer, uh, you have to deal with the music and with the structure of the poem. That being said, we had a lot of rehearsals before, prior to the recordings. And we worked for several years as a team, not only the singers and myself, but as often as we could, we met with several singers at, at, the t- at one time and to try to, to get some sense of unity through the, the recording. So th- there was a substantial amount of work done prior to the summer of 2012 when we recorded the set. Well, shall we listen to another one? Yeah. Let's listen to a, a piece you've already made reference to uh, called En Sourdine. Um, and we heard a bit of it in the two versions of Coloc Sentimental just a few minutes ago. What, what is this is song about? In Coloc Sentimental, which we heard before, Debussy uh, uses a quotation uh, from a much earlier song he had written in 1882, that's 22 years before. And that's a moment when, at the very beginning of En Sourdine, the piano has this insisting, repeated note. And then it's followed by a beautiful arabesque at the piano. And this quotation is used in both versions of the Colloque Sentimental, the published one and the unpublished one. So it's apparently a moment of his very early work that he liked a lot to go back to it 22 years later. Let's listen to it. Ooh. 
En Sourdine, from the Fête Galante by Claude Debussy. And that was Jean-Louis Hagenauer at the piano. And who was the singer there? Gilles Ragon. Gilles Ragon. And you've collaborated with uh, Gilles Ragon for a number of years. For a long, long time. We have done many, many concerts together and a few recordings as well. We recorded uh, Dichterliebe by uh, Schumann together. This is Profiles. I'm Joe Getz, and I'm in the studio today with pianist and professor Jean-Louis Hagenauer. He's recently recorded the complete songs of French composer Claude Debussy using Debussy's own piano. And I'd like to continue exploring this uh, this idea that we were just talking about, about Debussy looking back uh, to things he had written earlier. And there are two versions of the same or two settings of the same poem uh, the Debussy wrote. The first one came about in the 1880s, so he was in his middle middle to late 20s. He was in, in his early 20s. Early 20s, even. Early 20s. And, and then the second version of it didn't come until 1903. Mm-hmm. And um, it's this uh, this poem called C'est l'extase langoureuse by Paul Verlaine. Both, both are um, taken from a cycle... Um, of songs called uh, Les Ariettes Oubliées. Ariettes Oubliées. And that means forgotten... Forgotten little songs. But evidently he didn't forget. He didn't mm-hmm. forget. Uh, the first version was dedicated to his uh, great love, Madame Vanier, who was a wonderful singer. And she was married to someone else, she right? Went, uh, mm-hmm. She was <laughs> married to someone else, and um, that's a little bit of a trend in Debussy's love life. 
And so he worked for her. He wrote a lot of songs uh, in his 20, early 20s for her. That was first published in 1884, something like that. And then later in life, he went back to the cycle, put it together in a slightly revised form, but not very, very different. So there are significant differences, but it's the same music. Um, significant differences both in, in the, the piano setting and uh, the vocal setting. The f second version was dedicated or was published for Mary Garden, who had a year the year before been the first Mélisande in Debussy's opera, Peleas et Mélisande. And her voice was different from the very high voice Madame Vanier had. So I think the, some of the differences are probably related to the characteristics of the two voices. Well, the first version uh, in, in this recording is sung by the soprano, Magali Léger. Um, and then we're going to hear the second version with uh, your good friend, tenor Gilles Ragon. So let's listen to, to these two versions separated by uh, about almost uh, 20 years. C'est l'extase langoureuse by Claude Debussy.
Two versions of C'est l'extase langoureuse by Paul Verlaine, the poetry anyway, the music by Claude Debussy, the first version from the 1880s, the second version from 1903. And in that first version, we heard Magali Léger, soprano, Gilles Ragon in the second version, but uh, the pianist in both of them is my guest here on Profiles this hour, Jean-Louis Hagenauer, professor of piano at Indiana University's Jacobs School of Music. Professor Hagenauer, thank you for being with us today. Thank and, you for having me. And it's uh, it's an amazing recording. I think it's a great story, having Debussy's own piano involved, singers that you've worked with, including uh, Gilles Ragon, who you've worked with for years. Mm-hmm. Um, before we go, how did you find the other singers for this project? Well, I'm very close with uh, François Leroux, the baritone uh, for the project. And he's one of the leading singers in France, he has done a lot of recordings in French music, especially Peleas and Melisande, two, ver- two times in both characters, uh, Peleas and Golo. And he's incredibly knowledgeable in poetry. So he and Gilles uh, recommended the two soprani and uh, mezzo we, we worked with. And I must say that François was very, very helpful through the process of rehearsing and recording and he uh, worked very thoroughly with with us not only as a singer but also as a listener and a almost a coach in some cases uh, to help with the poetic structure we 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 wanted to know more about for uh, a lot of the songs well it's just amazing i i hope I hope lots of people get to listen to it, um, and I'm glad we got to listen to a bit of it of it today. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much. I'm Joe Getz, and this is Profiles on WFIU. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. 
Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. James Gray is the producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.